Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. And welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez. And yes, I've made it to episode two, so I haven't given up yet. And a lot of it is thanks to uh, the encouragement of many of you. I appreciate those of you that uh, listened to episode one and have continued now onto episode two. Um, Probably many of you have found this podcast on iTunes. If you're on iTunes, just hit the subscribe button. And many of you probably already have. um, And that'll give you an automatic alert uh, to uh, every time there's a new episode. And I can't promise how how often I'm going to do this. I'm aiming for doing this about once every two weeks. And it will really just depend on uh, my time and uh, the availability of uh, some of the guests I'm going to have on the program. Um, We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter page. If you're on Facebook, uh, look up Agents of Innovation Podcast. It should be facebook.com backslash Agents of Innovation Podcast. And if you're on Twitter... Uh, you can also follow us at Agent Innovation and uh, tweet us, uh, post on our Facebook page, and we'll uh, we'll interact with you, and it'll be a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciate you uh, listening, and we today have two fantastic guests. And the common connection that both of these guests have um, is that they both actually are currently living in Atlanta. Uh, yes, the city of Atlanta, Georgia, and that is a... Uh, place that's just about four and a half hours north of where I am at in Tallahassee, Florida. And I have, uh, since moving to Tallahassee over the last uh, seven years, I probably get up to Atlanta about twice a year. It's a, it's a great city, very vibrant, a lot of cool different neighborhoods, a lot of great places to eat. I mean, it's just a vibrant city. I don't know about the traffic, um, but I think it's a great city if you can live near where you work. Or if you could do as these two uh, on our program today do and probably aren't there very often. Um, we're going to have a tennis entrepreneur on the program, my good friend, John Eves Abone. Uh, he is a professional tennis player, ranked about 450 in the world, and is pursuing his dream. And he recently wrote a, a, a blog post talking about uh, the cost of living the dream. And we're going to get into that a little bit more with him. And then at the end of the program, we have a fantastic musician named Amy Gerhardt's. And Amy uh, does not uh, hail from Atlanta originally. Uh, She has been all over the place, uh, a a child of a a military family, and has even spent some time uh, here at Florida State University. And you know, that's another common connection she has with our first guest, Johnny Zabone. He also went to Florida State University where he played uh, on the tennis team there and actually was one of the best players in the history of that program. And so we're going to hear from both of these two today, and I'm looking forward to some fantastic conversations and hope you are as well. Okay, well, the first guest on the program uh, today on today's episode is my good friend, John Eves Abone. Uh, or otherwise, I just call him JY, which I will for the rest of the program. So uh, uh, I'll just throw this out to you. JY and I have been good friends for the last five or six years. Uh, for even a short period, uh, maybe less than a year, he was my roommate here in Tallahassee. And uh, so I got to know him pretty well. And um, 
And that was when he was kind of in between his tennis career. And I'll let him talk about that in a little bit. Um, but uh, John Eves has uh, uh, been playing tennis since he was a, a small child. And uh, has, it's just been, a, I know, a lifelong um, uh, part, of his, uh, part of his life, really, his entire life. And uh, he went on to play for Florida State University, um, was ACC Player of the Year there one year, um, has then gone, went on the tour during his time in college. And um, we're going to just kind of pick up there. Uh, JY, welcome to the program. Hey, Cisco, how you doing, man? Good. Uh, well, hey, thanks for being with us. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, uh, obviously, I know I've heard from you before. When you were a junior, you played um, some tournaments all around the world, uh, and then you went to play for FSU. Tell us a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah, so, you know, before I went to school, I played mostly international events in high school. I actually homeschooled, so I had the freedom to be able to travel more. Um, played a little bit in Europe play in South America, Central America, because my goal at the time was to skip school and just go straight into pro. Um, it's a route that some tennis players take uh, just to get a head start instead of, you know, start four years later. But, yeah, I just realized at the time when it was time to go to college, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't ready. So, you know, I chose to go to Florida State. And then while I was at Florida State in the summers, uh, when we were off at school, I was fortunate enough also to play uh, some professional events while waiting for the school to start again. So when you were at FSU, um, how, when you, play, you played some of those professional events, uh, what, what, did you, what, what was your career high ranking during that time? Uh, I believe I got to 475 was my high, uh, but I never played you know, a full year, so I did that off just a few tournaments in the summer and maybe uh, one or two tournaments in the fall because in the spring, you have the season, you can't play anything. So, And then you graduated from FSU, and um, what did you do next? You know, I decided to put the rackets down. I just said, you know, I kind of had enough of tennis. I'd played a lot my whole life, and I was just interested in doing something else. So I went to work at Avant Financial Group over there in Tallahassee, and, uh, you know, tried to take a different route, get into finance, worked as a financial representative there. After eight months, I, then I took a new position working over at Morgan Stanley in Miami, and then I moved down there. For, and I spent another 14 months working in finance there. So that sounds like a pretty good job with Morgan Stanley. And uh, I remember when you, when you got that job, um, and you were working pretty grueling hours there. Tell us about your, your average day at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, average day was uh, in the office at 8 and leaving at 7 o'clock at night. And that's just average. I mean, not even just average, that's minimum. Um, those are just my minimum hours that I had to be there. So, you know, lunch and breakfast were at the office every five days a week. And sometimes I even took a, a small dinner just so I could get through. Sometimes I'd work through about 9, 10 o'clock at night. So. Well, it's pretty grueling, uh, and and I know you were you're from Miami originally, um, and you grew up. Uh, your dad had a little bit of tennis background as well. And where are your parents from? And tell us a little bit about your dad's tennis background. Yeah, so my my entire family, you know, including my my parents, are all from Argentina. My brother and I are the only ones born in the United States. Mine, they moved here to Miami roughly I don't know, over thirty years ago. I don't even know anymore, and. 
my dad played tennis professionally. My mom did, but for a very short period of time. My dad did it, you know, full time for I don't know how many years, and was fortunate enough to play in all the Grand Slams, and was hundred in the world in singles and doubles. And so he was the main reason why I got into tennis. So uh, you continue with tennis all the way through, and then um, so when you were at Morgan Stanley, uh, how old were you uh, when you were finishing the job at Morgan Stanley? I was 24, I believe. So you're there, you're 24, you got this great job at Morgan Stanley, and you've been doing it for about 14 months, grueling hours, no doubt, when I say great job, maybe you don't think so, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, probably a lot of people would like a job like that, and, and you decide, what, what made you just decide, I want to go back and try playing tennis again? Yeah, I mean, it, it really was a great job, it was a great opportunity, I was on a great career path. I just think there was a part of me that, as I was watching more friends of mine um, make it through in tennis, I started to think more and more. I, since I never gave it a full shot and I got already to 470 in the world with only playing not even half a year, I was like, you know, what could I do if I just played full time? And my body was still good. I was ready to play. and. I just knew that if I would have gotten to early 30s, mid 30s, it was going to be a huge regret of mine if I just didn't at least try. Um, so it was more about that rather than me disliking where I was. I was on a great path, but I had to do this. I had to do it for myself. And, you know, tennis was always what made me so happy. So if I wasn't doing what made me happiest in life, then what was I really trying to achieve? So, uh, so basically, after roughly two years off the off of playing competitive tennis, you got to go back at it. And you know, I know um, as a tennis player, you know, you kind of keep those uh, instincts in a sense, and you, and you've got that sense. But it's still a challenge to go back out there and play competitively, uh, especially at the level you're playing at. And so, what was it like to get back ready to get to join the tour? It was a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. I knew I could get in shape rather quickly within a few months. Um, I did have some extra pounds on me, but you know, it wasn't the most difficult thing considering how much exercise I was getting playing tennis all day, every day. Um, I, the hardest part was just making th those natural instincts, making the correct decision in pressure moments when I'm really nervous. So just so many times, I, you know, for the first year, year and a half I was on tour, more often than not, I would make the wrong decision. And it was frustrating, you know. And then there, there were just little parts of my game that I had, I had lost a little touch and feel that I had before. And so it just, I had to be patient and wait for it to get back. And then there were these, all these guys that I had played before. Well, now I'm playing them later on in their career, but I'm two years behind. So mentally, it was a little tough seeing these guys that I knew I could compete against and, or even beat before, and now they're beating me on a consistent basis. So mentally, it was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. Well, uh, you know, for those that are listening that maybe aren't familiar with the professional tennis tour, uh, you, know, there are de there, you know, the French Open is going to be starting this week, and, you know, many people kind of tune in for the big uh, Grand Slam tournaments like that. Um, but there are various levels of tournaments that people play. And I know um, uh, when you start off, you play the Futures and the Challengers. Can you tell us a little bit about um, those levels and um, what you got to do to just uh, 
be able to enter those tournaments? Well, to be able to enter those tournaments, the, for the futures level, you don't need a ranking. You have to just sign up through an ITF IPEN membership, and that you know, with that yearly fee that you pay, you're able to enter to the qualifying events of these futures. Uh, you don't need a ranking. Uh, you know, then once you're in these tournaments, you have to qualify your way through. And then once you qualify your way through, you don't get any professional points until you win matches, when, until you're in the main draw. So once you're in the main draw, you win some matches, you start getting your ranking, and hopefully you accumulate enough points to where you get to a tournament and you don't have to qualify. And so that's it. Once your ranking gets higher and higher, then you move on to the challenger circuit. There is no specific ranking that you're required to get into the challenger circuit, but to get in there, you know, if you start off with a lower ranking, you're going to be in qualifying. The higher your ranking you have, the better chance you have of getting directly into main draw. So, you know, you try to build up your points enough in the future circuit. That way, when you get to challengers, hopefully you're in main draw and you don't have to qualify there as well. And when you're in the main draw, um, or I should say, when you're in the, you don't, do you, do you uh, accumulate any points at all in any of the qualifying? Not on the challenger. When you qualify in the challenger, you do get a few points. But in the future circuit, you do not qualify for a qualifying. So you have there you have to win in the main draw. Gotcha. Well, so um, you're going then from city to city. Um, tell us a little bit about the different challenges of practicing, training, playing the tournaments. Um, have there been any injuries along the way? Um, and then just uh, you know, and then we'll we'll talk about the financial challenges of all that as well. So just how's it like day to day, week to week on the tour? Well, it's actually exactly as you just said, day to day. Everything is day to day. You, if you win, you can practice. If you lose, I mean, if you win, you don't practice as much. If you lose, then you have more time to practice. Um, you know, if you're winning more than. Maybe you play a few less tournaments, but if you're losing, you're going to play more tournaments. Um, usually, you know, you have like a good off season where you spend about a month, month and a half getting your body in shape for the year. And then you go out, you play a few tournaments in a row, three, four. I don't like to play more than three. Three in a row, go back to wherever my home base is in Atlanta, Ginepri Performance Tennis, and then go back out for another three, four tournaments. You know, obviously, if you travel to let's say, Europe, you know, you're not necessarily going to do that. You're going to stay out there maybe for two months just because the expenses of flying back and forth and the jet lag is just too much. Um, but, yeah, everything is just a day-to-day. You have to evaluate your body. You have to evaluate your results. And if you feel you need more practice, you go back home and practice. If you feel that your game is ready to continue playing, let's say you're on a roll and you're winning more matches than you thought. Maybe you just keep riding it out and playing tournaments until your body gives out. Um, so it's a constant evaluation. You know, you never know when you're going to travel to the next event because it depends on, well, if you made the finals, then you have to fly the, la- you know, the very next day. But if you lost in the first round, then you have to say, okay, do I want to get to the next tournament two days before, three days before? Um, what's the climate over there? Is there altitude that I need to get used to? Do they play with different balls, different surface? So it's just a constant evaluation process that you get used to. So how much of your travel has been in the U.S. and, um, and how much has been abroad and where, where have you uh, played abroad? I would say maybe 75% has, 
has been in the U.S. Uh, the other 25% has been in Canada, uh, been in Mexico, and, you know, I'm, I'm starting to expand more and more. You know, at first, when I, when I, I, I didn't want to travel internationally that much because I didn't want to pay these expensive flights to go play in qualifying and possibly lose and have no prize money. So at least if I stayed in the U.S. and worked my ranking up here, um, it would be cheaper. You know, flying within the U.S. is cheaper than taking an international flight. But also, if I was in qualifying for an event and lost early, at least my expense wouldn't be so high. So now that I'm getting my ranking up higher and higher, you know, it's time to go travel to other tournaments. Sometimes there's no tournaments in the U.S., so you have to go travel overseas. And also, if you know, I make it to playing the French Open, Wimbledon, Australian Open, I have to travel overseas and start doing my preparations before those tournaments in their home countries. So when you were uh, uh, at, I think, at FSU, um, there was one time you actually played at the U.S. Open in the qualifying? Yes, after my sophomore year in 2008. Well, what was that like? Uh, it's, it's, I, you know, it's honestly it's the reason why I play now. I remember the feeling of how great it was to be there, and I was lucky enough to win a round in the qualifying and just that feeling of, of being amongst the best in the world and competing with them in the crowds and the energy, um, knowing and feeling that and, and being there firsthand is really what led me to want to come back and play. It's like I want to live for that. I want to experience that every day. And it was incredible, you know, just seeing Nadal, Federer walk by me in the locker room. I mean, and the first day or two, you're just stunned. You know, you're like, "Wow, these guys are here!" And not only there, I'm in their locker room. But wait, no, it's also my locker room. You know, so it, it was incredible. So it sounds like an equal playing field in the locker room there. But uh, <laughs> but but I just read your most recent blog. Uh, 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 and by the way, for those listening, JY has been blogging in the last six or so months from a website, uh, tennisatlantic.com. And uh, uh, I think he's up to about seven blogs now. And um, it's quite interesting to kind of see the life on tour uh, with JY. Uh, and his latest blog that he just wrote this past week um, details, uh, it's called The Cost of Living the Dream. And uh, I think we just heard him talk about that dream that he's pursuing. Uh, and, and yet um, it's, it's not easy out there. It's not working for Morgan Stanley, that's for sure. Uh, so uh, I, I see here, JY, you mentioned... Um, your total prize money in 2013, uh, which looks like a combination of singles and doubles, was just shy of $10,000. And your total prize money in 2014, a little better year, uh, was about $12,000. But your expenses um, are much more than that. And uh, I don't know if Dave Ramsey would be happy with you at this moment. But uh, uh, tell us a little bit about um, what it's like uh, making uh, that kind of level money uh, and, uh, and, and how you kind of keep sane out there. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Um, fortunately, I, I, I do have to say that the ITF, um, which is the, the, the international body that runs the future circuit, has announced an increase in prize money starting next year, 2016. And 2017, 2018, there's incremental increases in prize money. So... Hopefully, you know, if I keep winning, these numbers that you're seeing, on the, at least on the income side, will be higher. But 
Yeah, it's, it's tough. You know, I've, the way I've tried to look at it is whenever you start a business, you're going to be losing money for the first three years. And if your business is good enough and you've been able to be successful, then by the fourth, fifth year, that's when you start to make your money back. Um, so that's where I am now on my third year on tour. And I'm hoping that this business investment that I've put into myself is will start to pay off soon. I mean, I've I've been around tennis. I understand. I understood from the beginning that working your way up, there is no money. You're going to lose money. Uh, so hopefully, you. I've been trying to make it quick enough to where I limit the losses and I'm making money sooner rather than later. So you you also uh, were a little clever here in this blog, and you mentioned that um, you know you put your total uh, wages up there. And you mentioned that if you were an hourly worker, any hourly worker um, who works a minimum wage job at seven twenty-five an hour, which is the minimum wage in the United States, uh, forty hours a week, um, you would make actually fifteen thousand um, dollars, and you might even get some benefits in some of those jobs. Maybe, maybe not. You know, and you've you're, you've also got to pay for health insurance and all sorts of things, auto insurance. Um, and uh, so it's interesting. You're making below that level and still sticking it out there. Um, do you have sponsorships and, uh, and what, uh, uh, what other uh, ways do you try to save some money when you're out there traveling? The, the two sponsorships I have are my racket. I get free rackets and tennis string from Babolat. So they were, I mean, I, I can't say enough about them. They sponsored me from day one um, when I just got out of my job. They took a chance on me and have stuck with me so since then I've saved so much money um, with getting free rackets and string for them because that's in the thousands yearly Um, and then I just recently signed with a clothing company Engine Tennis and so I've just started getting some clothing for free Uh, outside of that I don't really have uh, you know any sponsorship uh, coming in I don't have any sponsorship income so but uh, yeah, you know, it's when you look at that that minimum wage. You know, we're below minimum wage, and but I look, I I didn't take this this pathway in my life to for the money. I know if I, if I wanted to make more money, I would have just stuck it out at Morgan Stanley. I'd be making way more money, and my bank account would have looked a lot nicer than it is now. But you know, I just found out firsthand that money can't buy happiness, and. And it's fortunately been holding true. You know, even when I look at my bank account, I still love what I'm doing. Um, I wouldn't change a thing. Even if they wouldn't be increasing the prize money in the next few years, it wouldn't change my decision. Uh, I love what I do, and I'd rather lose on the tennis court than win at the office. Well, that's great. Uh, and, you, you know, you're, I think you're, you're definitely right about that. Uh, well, I also noticed here in your blog, you mentioned um, when you're on the road, sometimes you got to stay at hotels, and sometimes uh, you're at tournaments where you can stay at a friend's house, or maybe uh, someone is able to put you up. Um, uh, what is it like at that kind of ground level? How is it like for yourself and other players uh, just trying to, you know, I mean, you're you're getting in the car, um, you're making a decision on, on whether you've got to uh, put some more gas in the car and go this way or go that way, or get on a flight, or stay at a hotel. What, what is that kind of day-to-day thought process like uh it's it's grueling i mean i've i'll spend let's say i'm I'm going to a city where i know i can't stay at anybody's house 
and I have to get a hotel, I will spend two, three hours, I maybe even more over a few days researching every possible discount hotel website, all my hotel rewards memberships that I have just to get the best, cheapest price that way when I go fill up my, my tank of gasoline to get in the car, it doesn't hurt as much. And, you know, when I'm searching for flights, I'm searching everywhere. I, I don't just get on, a web, get on a computer and within 10 minutes I have my reservation, I'm set to go. Um, it takes hours, it takes time, it takes, I know all the little ins and outs and little tricks to get cheaper prices here and there and what's a waste of time to go to. Um, but I will, <laughs> I've spent way too many hours trying to shave even $10 a night off of my hotels. Well, um, what is your uh, – uh, you, you've now surpassed your career high that you had when you were playing as a, as a Florida State player. Um, what has been your career high, and, and what are you ranked about now? I think my career high was 459, and I think I'm sitting right there, 461. And so I'm still right there. Well, good. And uh, you've got some uh, tournaments ahead. What, what are the next few weeks or few months looking like for you? Well, I just finished playing um, for about since the beginning of the year. I played a lot of weeks. I was over in Israel, came back here to the U.S., played some more tournaments. So I, I just took a mini vacation down here in Miami to see my family. And I'm going to train for the next two weeks, and then I'm deciding on either going to, to Mexico or Canada. And then, fortunately, in, in early July, I've been selected to play the Pan American Games and represent the U.S. in tennis there. So that's my schedule right now for the summer up until after those games. Where, where do those take place? In Toronto. Oh, great. Well, so that'll be between um, just the, the different countries of the Americas? Right, all the Americas. Well, great. We'll have to look out for you then. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, uh, this has been great getting to know you. We could probably talk for a long time and to learn more about what you're up to on the tour. But uh, if people want to read about it from... Uh, I think every few weeks or so, I see you posting a new blog post at TennisAtlantic.com. I know you're on Twitter at JYNoll, never losing the seminal flavor there. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we'll keep tabs. Anything else uh, people should know or, wanna, or you want to say at the last minute here? Um, not much. Uh, just thanks for having me on and thanks for you know anything I can do to get the, the world to understand just what it's like when uh, you're not playing on ESPN. So. Great, great. Well, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for being with us today, JY, and uh, good luck out there on the tour. We'll be watching you. All right, thanks. Okay, well, right now on the podcast, we have um, a musician who hails from Atlanta, Georgia, although... That's not where she's originally from, and she'll tell us a little bit more about that. But we have Amy Gearhart's with us, who's an eclectic singer-songwriter. She blends rock, pop, folk, blues, and country. She has an incredible storytelling ability in her songs. She's also opened up for lots of acts, uh, just to name a few. Jason Mraz, Zach Brown, Sister Hazel, and Better Than Ezra. I first met her at Rock by the Sea, a charity music festival that takes place on St. George Island, Florida. And she also has performed on the Rock Boat, which I've been on a few times. And she's just won uh, thousands of fans at those festivals and, and on the cruise. Um, and here she's with us today on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Amy, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Amy, you've been busy, and uh, tell us a little bit about um, what you've been up to uh, lately. Uh, well, I am now currently um, gearing up to go back on tour again. Last year, I took off for about five months across um, in my little Dodge Caliber uh, with my guitar player and really good friend, Brian Pacino. And uh, we went, uh, I don't know, about 21,000 miles on the car and uh, came back and just rested for a little while. And so now I'm just kind of getting things ready to go back out on the road again. Exciting. Well, tell us a little bit about what it's like to be out on the road uh, so much of your life. Um, you know, last year was my first experience with it. So there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad, I think, that comes with it. The great parts, you know, are, are meeting people and experiencing uh, their lives and getting to play music in front of people and making those connections. Uh, the only bad part really is the travel and, <laughs> and you know, trying to be healthy sitting in a car for, you know, anywhere from four to six, seven hours a day. Um, that, that I could do without, but you know, it's, it's kind of the, um, what you have to do in, in order to, uh, pay your dues and, and get to the next level and really, uh, get out there and reach people. But I would say all in all, it's, I mean, it's an amazing experience. I mean, the driving across country, I, I would highly recommend for anyone to do just because to be able to see how the country changes and, and to realize that fundamentally people are pretty much the same everywhere you go is, is really cool. So That's awesome. Um, well, that must be fun kind of getting to see the, the country through uh, all these, you know, uh, venues and house shows and everything. I'm going to back up just a little bit, though. Um, tell us how you got started. Um, I know you've lived in a lot of places, um, and you also – Went to school in a city I live in, uh, Tallahassee. You went to hmm. Florida State University. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started as a musician and, and where your journey's taken you from there. Sure. Well, this could probably be a long story, so I'll try to condense it. Um, I grew up um, in a musical family, sort of. So my, my um, dad and my four younger brothers and sisters, my older brother uh, and I are all pretty musically inclined. And my uh, grandmother is, is big into music. Um, but I am probably the first one, I think, that's decided to pick up and try to make a career out of it. Um, I grew up singing and, and acting and, and talking to myself all of the time. And uh, I, I did a lot of musical theater. And so um, it was at that point when I was in high school, you know, my choir director had recommended Florida State, uh, their music program. Uh, I think at the time that I went was, uh, I think, the top four in the country. Um, and so it had a really, really good choral program. So I went there for music and I actually studied, um, vocal performance for the first two years and then switched over to a, a BA in music. So I could uh, do a little more generalized study and study world music and things like that. And then, um, when I was in school, I, I picked up guitar and I started writing and playing my songs out live in front of people. And the rest is history, really. I, I've lived all over. My family's retired army. Um, and so after school, um, I hope I'm not talking way too fast here, but I went to uh, Virginia and played music there. I went to moved to New York and played music up there. And now I live in Atlanta. I play music here and I travel and I tour and that's what I do. Well, it sounds like you've really just followed your passion where it has taken you. Um <laughs> Uh, have there been any moments, any challenging uh, times through that that you've just, you know, 
wanted to give up or move on to something else? Or has this just been something you're just so passionate about you want to continue? You know, I, I, there's definitely challenging times. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, whenever you are passionate about something and you're not quite where you want to be yet, there's always that, that little bit of, um, I don't know, doubt or what can I do different or, you know, this and that. But, but no, I mean, I've, I've always known that I wanted a career in music. Um, the great part about it is that I've always been really open to whatever the future brings. Um, I, I have lots of hobbies that don't involve music, which is great. I think that kind of keeps me a little more um, balanced out. I think a lot of people um, don't realize that when you do your hobby for your job as well or your passion, uh, sometimes you need a break from that. <laughs> so there are definitely days when I wake up and I definitely um, don't want to um, play music and I want to do other things. But all in all, you know, I've, I've always loved playing music. It's always been my, my goal to have a very successful music career, whether that means I'm in the forefront or I'm in the background writing music for other people. I don't, I don't quite know yet. So, so yeah, it's exciting. Well, it sounds like your, your family... <laughs> Uh, did your family have, I mean, you mentioned you had such a musical family. Was that your yeah. sort of first inspiration? Uh, yes and no. Um, so my my parents were divorced, and so I, I grew up with my older brother, and my um, dad and my four younger brothers and sisters and my stepmom uh, lived in New Jersey. Um, so I would get to see them, you know, a couple times a year, and, and we'd all sing and play music together. But I, um, I, I don't really know. I, I came, I guess I just grew up listening to a lot of really great music. My mom and my dad both played um, a lot of classic rock, like CCR and the Beatles and the Stones. And um, and I just had a really big passion for it from a young age. Um, it's funny, my I was talking to my grandmother um, re- just recently, and, and she was in a, a trio singing group uh, when she was younger, too. So <laughs> it's I guess it runs in the family. I guess it's just something that's there. And um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that my family's always been very supportive. Um, so they've always kind of let me uh, explore my talent and explore um, making this a business, and they've never discouraged me. So uh, I'm very blessed in that aspect. So I guess, yeah, I guess they're, they're at some, some degree a, a motivating factor or a, an influence on what I'm doing today. Well, um, one thing I've always taken from your music is you just have, like, um, some really great storytelling through your songs. Uh, you feel like, you know, you kind of, I can almost like picture like where you've been or what you're going through, just like listening to your songs and tell me where that comes from and how you develop, how do you, uh, come up with some of these songs? Um, that's a really good question. You know, it, it, when I first started writing, it all came from me. Um, and I kept everything really close. And then as you grow just in any, any art form or anything you're learning how to do, uh, you learn how to step outside the box a little bit. And, um, so a lot of my, my stories and songs, um, either come from personal experiences, experience of experiences of people around me, um, you know, or things I've heard or things I imagine too. Um, it's hard to know when those ideas are going to come too, because sometimes I can, just be in my car driving. I write a lot of songs in the car and get ideas in the car. I don't know if it's just because it's like a quiet space, but, um, and things will just pop in my head and, and, you know, I, I, there's no rhyme or reason for it. Um, there are times when I can write a whole lot, um, and really be concise and get it done really quickly. And then there's other times I can start a song and put it away for a year or two and not go back to it. So, 
Um, yeah, <laughs> I wish I had a better answer for you. It just there's a, it just comes from everywhere, really. Well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I feel like myself, and I hear this from a lot of people, get a lot of ideas in the shower. So whether it's in the shower <laughs> or in the car, t- two places that are bad to write stuff down, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I uh, thank goodness for technology and voice memos. Yes. So I can, I can record myself singing something in the car, which is, you know, probably not the safest thing to do, but I, I get it done. So, um, yeah, and then I've always had that philosophy, too, and, and it doesn't always work. Uh, but sometimes I have that that this theory that if I can if I can remember it without writing it down, then it's probably a good idea. <laughs> if, I, if I can't remember it, then it's probably not a good idea. Um, and well, there's definitely been a couple times where I've I've lost great ideas that I've loved and and I've forgotten them. But oh, they'll come back someday, hopefully. Well, speaking of good ideas, last year you embarked on a tour of ten thousand, and uh, it. From what I heard, this is, the idea behind this tour was try to meet and interact with 10,000 new fans, and you did this in a combination of house shows, uh, concert festivals, other types of concert venues. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thinking of doing that and how it panned out for you. Yeah, um, well, it, it was also, um, how do I, let me think. So it, it definitely, the goal was to, to have 10,000 new fans by the end of the year, uh, whether that be through traveling, um, through playing shows, through in social media. Um, and I think we came really close, actually. It's, you know, the, the one thing you learn when you're doing everything yourself is that um, there's a beauty in hindsight and <laughs> getting things better organized uh, from the get-go. So everything's a, a big learning experience. Um, and I realized as we hit the road that I didn't really have an accurate way of counting 10,000 fans. Um, that I had, you know, Facebook, I have a personal page, I have a music page, I have an email list, I have uh, so many other avenues where people can become my fans uh, through Twitter and, you know, Instagram and all these other things. And so um, when I added everything up, I think we came close to about eight or 9,000. Uh, but hopefully next year going out, I'll, I'll have a better system of counting uh, and getting a better number. On, so on so how many how many uh, how many shows did you do last year? We ended up doing a total of sixty-seven. That's incredible. Um, and, yeah, and, and where did and that span? What was what were your boundaries? Oh. <laughs> oh, in terms of where did we go? Yeah. Oh, we went everywhere. I mean, we went up through the Midwest. We I have uh, thirty magnets, thirty plus magnets from states uh, that we went to and, and drove through. Um, so, and, and when you say we, uh, who did you go with? Oh, so Brian Ficchino, my guitar player and, and really good friend and producer and, uh, guy produced the first three, uh, CDs that I did. Um, we went, you know, just everywhere. We drove all the way up to California and back, uh, up through the Midwest to Texas, to Colorado, um, through the Northeast, all the way up to Massachusetts and then back down through Georgia and Florida. And, and it was great. It was just a lot of driving. <laughs> I bet. Well, Brian's an incredible musician, and for those of you who haven't great. heard him, um, you've got to hear Brian Ficchino. And is Brian on your album as well? He is. He's on uh, the last three, so he produced and played uh, on the acoustic album and the Volume 1 and Volume 2 EPs. Well, that's incredible. So other than Brian on your album, uh, would you consider yourself a solo artist? I would say, yeah, for the most part. Um, unless I'm doing an event where I would have a duo or a trio. Uh, or a full band like on the rock boat. I mean, I, I definitely consider myself a solo um, singer songwriter. Um, 
but I, you know, the other musicians I play with definitely help influence my sound. Um, and they definitely are handpicked to, to do so. So, you know, I, I can't go out with just anybody and play a show with just anybody. Um, you know, I picked, I try to pick people that are better, better than I am so that, (laughs) so that everything just sounds better. (laughs) Well, it sounds like you're a a very smart person, Amy. Um, and, um, um, before we wrap up, um, I want to remind everybody to check out your music. You have a great website, actually, amygearhearts.com. That's G-E-R-H-A-R-T-Z, amygearhearts.com. And, um, you can also find her on Facebook and Twitter at amygearhearts. Um, and, uh, she always, uh, posts a lot of updates on what she's doing. And I always, you know, you can watch some videos of, of some of her fun stuff. I've always enjoyed the, uh, the song, it ain't you, it's the whiskey, uh, which hmm. you go through so many different brands of whiskey, uh, uh, yeah. uh on that, in the, in that song. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun, especially in the live setting. And so it sounds like we have a lot of opportunities, no matter, no matter where people are listening to this podcast, it, it might just be like you and me listening at the end of the day, but, um, they, it sounds like, though, uh, no matter where people are around the country, they're going to probably have an opportunity to see you at some point because you get all over. Um, but speaking of, um, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, Amy, is, yeah, what is it like uh, being a, a female musician um, in what seems to be a pretty male-dominated industry? Um, you know, I think just like everything, there's the good and the bad. I, I have to say there's there's definitely a bonus um, to when it comes down to being picked, um, if somebody's looking for a female versus a male, uh, traveling and singing, I don't think there's as much competition, but, um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, the females, there's, I think there's a lot of women out there that, that people just aren't, haven't heard of yet. Um, and I don't really see any disadvantage to being a woman, um, in the music industry. If anything, I think we've got just as much to offer as men and, and, you know, we're on equal, equal playing fields. I just think that more people need to um, realize that there's a lot of great independent and, and just touring females out there that are doing exactly what I'm doing. So the more awareness we bring to them, the, the more, I guess, the female musician will stand out, uh, which will be great. Um, so, yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, it's, it's always been a pleasure seeing you uh, live and, and uh, even – listening to your album uh, uh, throughout uh, the day to uh, pick myself up and get, you know, kind of break away and get some uh, storytelling going on there. Um, what uh, We're going to actually close out here, Amy. And I sure. really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast, and I think we're going to close out. Um, what song here are we going to uh, play uh, as we close out? Sure. Um, can I say one more thing, too, before we close out? Oh, sure. I am actually uh, getting ready to get into the studio and to do another full-length album, uh, and within the next couple weeks, we'll be launching a pledge music campaign. So just keep an eye out for that. Um, so the song we'll close out with, let's do Welcome Sign from the acoustic album. Great. Uh, and tell us a little story about Welcome Sign. How did you, how did you uh, write that song? Sure. I was driving back from my first year of playing Rock by the Sea in Florida. And I was on these back roads between Florida and Georgia and noticed that there was nothing else on these roads besides a bunch of old churches. And it kept going on and on for a good couple of miles. There was just church after church after church. And there were no, there was nothing else out there. No gas stations, no houses, no people that I saw. Just a whole bunch of churches. And, uh, and so I started to get the idea of what it would be like to be somebody that goes to church in the middle of nowhere. And that's what this song's about. 
Well, it's a great song, and I think um, our listeners will, will really appreciate it as we close out here. Thank you, Amy, for, for being on here, and here's Welcome Sign. Up an old dirt road About 20 miles from the closest store You should step on in if you get some time Cause they've got God on the welcome sign Yeah.